I'm Christopher Baudet with the Steyer Group. In the Gospel, Jesus fed 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish. After the crowd was satisfied, there were 12 wicker baskets left over. It seems that whenever you and I set to work and do our part, God provides the abundance. In each episode of this podcast, I'll explore with pastoral leaders and development professionals from across the United States and Canada all the many ways God meets the spiritual and temporal needs of our parish communities, our Catholic schools, and the diocesan church. And not only meets those needs, but provides in abundance. You're listening to 12 Wicker Baskets. Welcome and thanks for joining me today for our October episode. I love the month of October here in Minnesota. It's just, it's so beautiful. The dry and cool air is fresh and the vibrant colors in the trees, the the orange and the red, it's, it's kaleidoscopic. It's really, really beautiful. And I hope you are enjoying a very pleasant autumn as well. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest Renee Underwood from the Diocese of Fort Worth. Later in the episode, we'll also hear from Jim Steyer as we continue to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Steyer Group here on 12 Wicker Baskets. Renee Underwood has served in stewardship, development, and Catholic Foundation management roles for dioceses since 2009. In her current role as Chief Development Officer of the Diocese of Fort Worth Advancement Foundation, she has the responsibility for annual and planned giving, endowment funds, and capital campaigns. She currently serves as the Region 10 Board Representative to the International Catholic Stewardship Council, bringing to the position her extensive board experience for nonprofit organizations. She also currently serves on the executive committees of Lone Star Council Charitable Gift Planners, the Fort Worth Metro Chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, the Fort Worth Sarah Club, and the Southwestern Lieutenancy of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. Prior to her nonprofit career, Renee served in advertising, marketing, and executive management roles. She holds a bachelor's degree from Texas Tech University, an MBA from the University of Texas at Dallas, and has completed additional graduate studies toward a master's in pastoral studies from Loyola University, New Orleans. Renee is a widow a mother of two sons, a grandmother of three, and a spiritual director. Renee, thank you very much for the gift of your time, and I want to welcome you here to 12 Wicker Baskets. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you today. Renee, I always like to start our conversations with our guests just to unpack a little bit more about your background and in particular how your faith, your Catholic faith, has motivated you and guided you uh, at various stages of your journey thus far, and, and what brought you to serve the church in your current role? 
Well, uh, like most people who are in professional fund development, which I consider my career now, most of us didn't study that or start out to be in that role. Right. Uh, and it was very much a faith journey that brought me here after uh, my extensive advertising and marketing background, first on the ad agency side of the business, then in-house on the client side. But when I was in grad school, I felt this tug of call that while I went into grad school thinking I was wanting to be in uh, an entrepreneur, if you will, mm -hmm. to own my own business, instead, the Lord had different plans for me, and I kept feeling this tug, and it was I'm not sure the Holy Spirit said it this way, but it's the way I heard it. And that was, Renee, are you using the gifts and talents I've given you the way I want you to? Mm. And I kept getting this tug and called a ministry. Well, shortly thereafter, I was close to wrapping up my grad school career. I uh, heard about a job opening in the Diocese of Lubbock, where I was living at the time, okay. and the bishop was looking for a director of stewardship and development. And shortly after hearing about that, I was sitting right in front uh, with the bishop at the time. I knew him well. I'd served on a number of his committees. And I um, I said, tell me about this stewardship development. What are you looking for here? And he started sharing about the position. Well, I've raised money for free for a lot of nonprofit organizations over the year, just, okay. you know, as a volunteer, but not paid professionally to do it. And it just sounded like the right thing. And I said, Bishop, tell me, I want to be sure if I'm going to do this, I want to make sure it's work that is ministry. And he mm. said, oh, Renee, it's very much ministry. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if he was really trying to sell me on <laughs> taking the role or uh, but I, I had indeed found, yes, that <laughs> that this work of working with people and guiding them into philanthropy and determining what their legacy will be is very much God ordained. And it's much mm. like my work in spiritual direction. Mm. Mm -hmm. that it is, I'm not directing and they're not being directed. It's God that's doing the direction. Mm -hmm. and I'm just mm -hmm. the facilitator. And so I've found that to be carried out here in my work. I was going to ask you, uh, when you asked the bishop for some kind of assurance that the job, the work would be ministerial, would be ministry. Uh -huh. It sounds like you had already, God had already put that on your heart to not just employ your gifts in a business way. You're studying, you're getting an MBA uh, in graduate school or an entrepreneurial fashion, but it, for some transcendent, some purpose to serve the gospel. What did you have in mind when you asked the bishop is it going to be ministry? What I had in mind and what I hear from a lot of other people who leave for-profit work mm -hmm. and end up working in dioceses or parishes or whatever it may be, it's this common theme. They're looking for mission. I worked for some great companies and some great organizations, and ministry does indeed happen in the secular world. You know, mm -hmm. you can be present. As a matter of fact, my graduate studies at Loyola, New Orleans were for marketing marketplace ministry. There's just something higher about working for the purpose of the church. And the more you know about the church and the good work that it makes possible in so many ways, I can't imagine doing anything else. That said, I needed that 
background for all those years in other areas mm-hmm. to be ready to do the mm-hmm. work I do today. You're a bit like almost being prepared for, for mission. Right. Yeah. Right. You look back, you know, often on these occasions in your life with 2020 hindsight and know that God was directing you every right. step of the way. Right. Right. Even, even people you encounter along the journey and you circle back and suddenly there's a whole new flowering from that relationship that you wouldn't have foreseen in the past, but now, oh, here's why we met or here's, here's a beautiful yes. thing we can do together. I'm thinking of the Bishop of Lubbock, you know, you, you had met him previously and knew him and now this comes along seemingly right. at the same time internally you were discerning uh, a step in that direction yes he was actually shocked i was interested <laughs> he knew what roles i had yeah and and it, it was indeed at that time a step down in compensation i'm sure but the trade-off was you know they always say um the rewards are out of this world right yeah so literally that's where i am <laughs> That's great. And so talk to me about your your role as a spiritual director as well. What brought you into that work? Because I would imagine a lot of what we're talking about right now, the ability to discern the movement of the Holy Spirit in mysterious ways, and as you said, often more clearly perceived in retrospect, I would imagine that would be a great resource and experience that you have uh, to bring to your spiritual directees. Uh, what what brought well, you Christopher, in? Now that you say it that way, I hadn't really thought of it. That's actually is very profound. The way I got into it is I am a lifelong learner, particularly in issues related to my faith. Mm-hmm. I've often said to people, I hope I learn something new about the Catholic faith or Jesus's teaching on my last hour on this earth because I'm always wanting to know more and understand more. In this quest for lifelong learning, I found myself in a three-year spirituality course offered in Lubbock by a convent out there, some Franciscan sisters, and it had an option to be trained and and learn about spiritual direction. But, But through that process, there was a lot of reading of the great doctors of the church, the great spiritual thinkers. I mean, um, that was a graduate course in and of itself. I'm sure. Uh, And and through that, yes, you're right. There were things you learned about how to listen to people, how to recognize the presence of God in conversations you're having with individuals. And so, yes, that's truly uh, been a benefit of my work. Um, I finished that course right as I was moving from Lubbock to Fort Worth. And so I got to put them into play right here. That's right off the bat. Again, perfect. It's got the divine written all over it, the perfect timeline. What what made you move from your role uh, in Lubbock to Fort Worth? Been kind of a constant in my life, besides the lifelong learning, is a wider influence for good, okay. an opportunity to impact more people. Mm-hmm. And I loved my time in Lubbock through ICSC and other organizations. I found myself to have a bigger platform than just that small mission diocese mm-hmm. uh, in the work of stewardship and development work in the broader church. However, uh, when a headhunter called me uh, to ask if 
if I'd be interested in doing what I'd been doing in Lubbock for the Diocese of Fort Worth, I was sitting here thinking 130,000 self-identified Catholics, 1.3 million self-identified Catholics. And that, that alone was intriguing, but I would be lying if I didn't say the fact that my oldest son and his wife and my only three grandchildren got transferred uh, through his company from Lubbock to Fort Worth uh-huh. about about three months before that headhunter called. Wow. And okay. so, again, another Holy Spirit moment. Yeah. It wasn't a slam dunk, though. I had to go through Ignatian spiritual exercises to discern was, was this wishful thinking on my part. Mm-hmm. But I've been delighted to be here in Fort Worth and impact uh, Catholic philanthropy in a much larger way. And you mentioned Ignatian spirituality. I was going to ask you about your studies, your formal studies in uh, pastoral studies at Loyola. Uh, your spiritual direction work have you were you required to read kind of the full breath you mentioned the doctors of the church i'm thinking you've probably read about the spiritual exercises of ignatius of loyola probably carmelite spirituality when i was at when i was at new orleans or loyola new orleans that was a big foundational part of the graduate program Mm -hmm. uh incorporating the spirituality of ignatius and the and the exercises but i've got to tell you the bishop of lubbock who who uh, Robert Curver, who's the bishop now, who came on board about oh, six or seven months before I left Lubbock, he was very much influenced by St. Ignatius. And I re-embraced St. Ignatius probably those last six months before I moved. And it was Lent as I was making the decision mm-hmm. about the move. And mm-hmm. and so I've got to give Bishop Kerber credit for uh, the influence of Ignatian spirituality in mm-hmm. my work mm-hmm. and my decision making. And um, we can we can come back to this, I think, when we're talking about working with folks, maybe discerning uh, a gift, a, a legacy gift, a planned gift in service to the church, um, and maybe even how discernment of spirits and perceiving uh, God's presence in conversations that you have with people, like you mentioned, how that would translate as well to your interaction with um, donors. I mean, they're donors, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're, they're fellow disciples on the way with us. And so very much um, uh, those conversations, I would imagine, are graced, are, are blessed opportunities for uh, sharing the faith and sharing the, the church's needs uh, to continue the mission. They absolutely are. You know, I I recognize that in my head all the time, but but certainly there are those moments when you're in the moment with the donor and it's like you feel it. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like God has me here at this time with these people. Um, and sometimes it's not about the gift they're trying to make. Sometimes, um, and you know, in a lot of cases, you deal with a lot of people who are older, they've lost a spouse, they're grieving, they've mm-hmm. got baggage, and they literally just want to share first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so your first thing you do with most every donor relationship is listen, because sometimes I want to vent about things going on in the church or not going on in the church or or, or a hurt that they have, and then 
it's just beautiful to watch how the Holy Spirit turns those um, kind of angry conversations into something really beautiful. And before Mm. you know it, they're saying, well, yeah, how can I do more? And and it grows from there. Yeah. Almost like, uh, you know, they need, they just needed an invitation to, to step out. Yeah. And then the opportunity presents itself and it's a great opportunity to, to give of themselves, not just of their resources, but really with that gift comes a gift of themselves. I think we all feel better when we give, you know, it's great to, to get, but really we're made to to be in relationship with others. And, and that's where we find our fulfillment, just as the Lord designed us in his own image and likeness, right? That God is a, a, the giver of gifts, not the taker. And you're touching, you know, on some of the tenets of, of Catholic stewardship as we understand it. You know, too many people hear that word stewardship and they run straight to thinking, oh, they're going to ask me for money. And I mean, I hear that even priests go straight to Mm. stewardship equals money. Mm -hmm. And when it's truly a way of life that that you recognize, as you were saying, everything's a gift from God. And we're grateful for those gifts. And we just want to share, whether it be um, in serving others, in uh, the love that we offer, money or a fresh baked pie. But it's just become such a part of who we are. And I'm just fortunate that I get to work with so many people every day in my role who get it. They truly understand what Christ calls us to when he calls us to be good stewards of God's varied graces. In the Diocese of Fort Worth, what programs or what efforts are made or implemented uh, diocese-wide to encourage this stewardship way of life? Maybe, in other words, to break down this uh, too close of an identification between this rich theology and component of Christianity called stewardship and simply just giving of your resources, financial resources. Um, How's that going in the Diocese of Fort Worth? Each year it's getting better and better. And I've got to congratulate Bishop Michael Olson this year, who in January communicated to all his priests and all the seminarians that three major initiatives, stewardship-related, that were all new this year. Mm. Um, The first one was a diocesan day of stewardship, and uh, it featured uh, Bishop Olson speaking, but also we brought in a a speaker from the Diocese of Phoenix, uh, Conde de Leon, you Mm -hmm. may know him. I do. And um, that was for priests and lay people. It was just kind of a mixed thing that was on the Feast of St. Joseph. That was the first. Uh, The second was something we call the Light of Christ Awards. And we have 91 parishes and, well, now 92. As of this last weekend, we birthed a new community. Oh, congratulations. uh, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, appropriately founded uh, on the Sunday before her feast day. Oh, so nice. anyway, we have 92 parishes, and each pastor was invited to select one individual or couple, could not be deacons, no ordained people, just lay people, that truly live out stewardship as a way of life. And they were all recognized and honored 
both at a joint event uh, that Bishop Olson was at, but individually in each of the parishes. And uh, a lot of feature stories on them in our North Texas Catholic magazine that heightened because people sometimes can't describe something, but when they see it in action, they go, Oh, I know. Cause I know how they live. I know what right. they do. Right. And then they get it. And the third and final initiative that he's put in place new this year is, and we are going to have our first diocesan wide stewardship Sunday. And it's not about passing out pledge cards. It is teaching the tenants of stewardship, uh, pastors giving homilies on stewardship as a way of life. There's a lot of resources, materials for our parishes to carry it out. But we're really excited about that because it's not it's not about, oh, sign up for a ministry or uh, give us more money for the offertory. It's about heightening the awareness of uh, stewardship the way Jesus teaches. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations on all of that, because I think that's uh, true pastoral leadership. And also to, to highlight, you know, those members of the community who who are demonstrating it, like you said, you know, in its, in its well, fullest. And I might add, Bishop Olson put some teeth in this. He recognizes the, the priests and the future priests are seminarians as the teachers of the faith in the diocese. And so besides these initiatives, mm-hmm. he's incorporating teaching of stewardship um, through our seminarians formation program mm-hmm. and in our presbyteral assemblies. And right before this student Stewardship Sunday coming up, there will be a major uh, stewardship teaching to the entire presbyterate. So we're looking forward to that as well. That's great. You got to teach the teachers, right? Yeah, you can't you can't teach what you don't know, right? That's right. So in addition to the stewardship work that you're doing, which is which is just tremendous, all of these initiatives that you're mentioning, speak to me about the unique way of supporting the church through planned giving. And remembering in estate plans or legacy gifts or, you know, maybe maybe uh, gifts that are of a substantial nature that day to day raising a family or saving for the uncertainties of life, et cetera, people may not feel they're able to give. But with a with a legacy gift and a planned gift, they they might be more open and available to do that. Speak to me about your work with with the faithful uh, to remember the church and their uh, estate planning. The key thing about planned giving right now in the church is, first of all, it's very fertile ground. So many of um, our Catholic faithful, and I would say maybe boomer generation and older in particular, they are being bombarded through their universities and other entities about planned giving, but they don't hear much about it from the church. So as a result, when they pass away, you often see the family suggest memorials to XYZ charity, and it's not their parish, and it's mm-hmm. not the diocese. Over and over, you hear it's because we don't ask. I'm finding that the more you plant the seed and people hear about it, again, my advertising and marketing degree, people are smart. They 
they connect the dots and they put two and two together. And because there are so many people that are empty nesters, they've got the kids off to college, or maybe they never did have children, they've got their retirement all in order, they stop and they're revisiting beneficiary designations and wills. It's not a thing that people set and forget. They're they're looking at those over and over and they're and they're willing. And so what I have worked really hard to do is provide those 92 parishes and 17 Catholic schools with resources so that they can have things on their website, in their bulletin, on a rotating basis that just plants the seeds about stock gifts or IRA um, charitable distributions from a qualified retirement plan, uh, a will, a beneficiary designation in a life insurance policy or a financial instrument, little short little paragraphs that typically, for more information, visit, and then they go to okay. our planned giving website. Okay. And that has been really helpful in getting the word out and, and drumming up the calls, if you will. Right. I love that. Let's take a brief break right here, if we may. And then uh, when I come back, um, we'll continue discussing planned giving and in this golden opportunity, this fertile ground that you're describing and how maybe it might be missed in a lot of dioceses, what dioceses could do, you know, if they feel like they're not tilling this fertile soil sufficiently. So uh, please don't go away. We will be right back. You're listening to 12 Wicker Baskets with my guest, Renee Underwood. We'll be right back. The Steyer Group has been inspiring support for the mission of the Catholic Church since 1997, managing nearly 1,800 campaigns and helping our clients raise over $2.5 billion. We're not just consultants who follow a cookie-cutter approach. We customize our services and become true partners with direct, hands-on management of your effort. And your success isn't measured in just dollars and cents. It's also measured in spiritual growth and deeply rooted discipleship. In addition to an exclusively assigned campaign manager, you'll also have the support of a team of development professionals, including graphic designers, foundation researchers, grant writers, communication specialists, videographers, plan giving attorneys and event planners. Everything you need to achieve your goals under one roof. Contact us today to learn more about how the Steyer Group can inspire support in your community. Call us at 866-391-3244 or visit www.steyergroup.com. The Steyer Group, inspiring support. Thanks for uh, staying with us as we continue our conversation about remembering the church in your planned giving with my guest, Renee Underwood. Right before the break, we were talking about the fertile soil that is planned giving for folks to remember the church when very often the church, whether it's their local parish or the diocese, may not be anywhere near the top of their philanthropic list or maybe not on it at all. Often that's because they haven't been invited to remember the church. How would you assess the health or the status of planned Planned giving in dioceses, and from your experience, you're you're on the ICSC board. You kind of have a a, a large vantage point, a broad vantage point to be able to perceive this. How do you think dioceses are faring? How do you think they're doing in terms of encouraging planned giving to the church? 
Well, I've seen major changes from 2009, not to say we weren't focused on planned giving, but when I first started working in at the diocesan level, it seemed like it was annual appeal, annual appeal, annual appeal. That's almost all everybody talked about. Mm-hmm. Well, the typical planned gift may be a hundred times larger than the largest annual appeal gift or in parish speak, offertory gift. And um, because of a lot of resources made available to us, our, our Catholic diocese and uh, foundation staffs have become um, more savvy, more learned in these areas, that there is a, a, a major, major focus in, um, if you will, blended giving, where, where people think about a gift now, mm-hmm. a gift for today, a gift for after I'm gone. And most all my planned giving discussions almost always morph into uh, someone setting up an endowment now that spells out all the terms of how they would like their money to be used. And they they fund it with a little bit of money now, some cash they have available. Mm-hmm. But the real big contribution is going to come when they pass because then their will says to the XY the endowment fund, they love being part of making the decisions about how their gifts will be used for generations to come. Right, right. Yeah, I would imagine for someone who loves the church to be able to have an, an assurance that I will be able to contribute to the mission of the church even after I'm awaiting the resurrection, <laughs> you know. That's right. Uh, well, and another advantage that we have in Catholic fundraising at a diocesan level is if they are interested in seminarians and the future priests, mm-hmm. we've got that. If that's not their thing and they want Catholic schools, we've got that. If that's not their thing and they want parish, we've got that. If they want social service type outreach like St. Vincent de Paul or um, Catholic Charities, we have all of that. And so it's not like we're trying to push anything down right. um, one of these generous donors' throats. Right. I mean, they you feel out for them what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really beautiful to see how it all comes together. How have you asked for planned gifts or have you in capital campaigns where the projects are a little more defined and, and pre-chosen because these are the most pressing needs that the diocesan bishop and diocesan leadership through due diligence have identified. How has that worked for you? Two ways. One very specifically tied to the campaign. And obviously in your work, you know, you need the money to build the the sanctuary or whatever. You can't wait 30 years uh, for the planned gift to come through. But there's not a capital campaign I have going in this diocese right now that doesn't also include if they once they raise the money to build Mm -hmm. an endowment fund to take care of these great facilities. And so they can make a gift now to the campaign and a gift later to that endowment fund for the parish that ultimately will take care of the facilities. And then I would just say this, and this is very simple and basic, every pledge card, whether it's a 
uh, commitment card for increasing your offertory. You know how parishes, a lot of parishes mm-hmm. do that one time a year, mm-hmm. or a pledge card for a, ca- a new capital campaign. Just planting the seed with a little checkbox. I cannot tell you how many of those we get. They we are very conscious to follow up on them and did one uh, two weeks ago and uh, it started with a checkbox on an offertory card and it led to a million dollar plan gift. Wow, beautiful. In just in basically three months time from the time that pastor passed the lead on to me to a plan for him to send a letter and to introduce uh, one of my team members and then sitting with the lady and and her doing that and and it was just you know amazing to watch that unfold yeah that that is amazing and i was going to ask you if a diocese wanted to be more intentional about either starting a planned giving program or improving upon one they already have um what might be some tips or strategies but it sounds like you know you've just mentioned some for sure step one like make sure you're at least in any instrument you're, you're providing donors a vehicle to make their gift to make sure that planned giving is a stated option for them. I think the key thing is awareness and realize it's like the water on the stone and the river. It get, only gets smooth from more water and more water all the time. And so it's not like you can just do this one time in the bulletin and said, oh, well, we had an announcement. I mean, you have to freshen up your messages and uh, be there. I get calls every week and I always say, tell me how you heard about us. Nine times out of 10, I saw it in something at my parish. Uh, It's not like they just wake up and go, hey, I'm going to search hard and figure out who the Advancement Foundation for the Diocese of Fort Worth is, and I'm going to go to their website. Now, once they get to our website, you know, there's a lot of good resources. Mm -hmm. But uh, most often it's just those bottoms of the email kind of signature lines and bulletin blurbs and those kind of little things and just keep doing them. Mm -hmm. That's a good analogy, because when you're looking at water running over a rock, you think nothing's happening to the rock. But over time, right. I think in the Archdiocese of San Antonio, they have a program, and I I might be mistaken, but I believe it's called Now and at the Hour of Our Death. And it's a program that uh, is put on in parishes for the faithful to attend to learn more about the theology of the four last things and to discuss and learn more about the, the right of Christian burial and planning a funeral and why that's important, and also about making a planned gift and remembering the church as you're making all sorts of other arrangements about the death that that we all experience as a a birth to eternal life. Have you heard of that program? Have you heard of any other programs like it or other initiatives? Not not as beautifully worded as that. I'll visit with my friends down there and say, well, you will uh, allow us to use that kind of language because we actually do those things. So I did them back in Lubbock. I do Mm -hmm. them here. Um, We we typically do them in concert with sometimes estate planning lawyers, people who are there um, uh, that speak about our responsibilities Mm -hmm. um, 
to the dying and those who have already passed. And uh, they're not, I mean, don't expect to get 500 in a room, expect 30 or so, but they are rich, rich uh, little seminars. You can do them parish-based, you can do them deanery-based, and and we actually do have programs that we do like that. I, I think maybe that now and at the hour of our death might get more people's attention. So I salute my uh, friends in San Antonio for uh, branding it that way. Yeah. And and also um, situating the, the practical steps of making a planned gift within the context of a lot of other practical steps, like planning yeah. a funeral and making sure that your liturgy is reflective of um, the dignity of the body, or the whole theology well, of death. Well, and those important documents you need to have, you know, don't just sign the standard hospital form or nursing home form for right. um, your last request. I mean, there are, are Catholic generated documents that and and I've changed my own to make sure that they're in line with church teaching mm-hmm. and uh, that's something that you can share in one of these types of seminars mm-hmm. the work that you're doing at these seminars to teach the faithful about planned giving you mentioned you know you can get estate lawyers present and what are what are the what's the latest in some tax tax laws relevant to, to planned giving that you might mention? Rather than getting into the law, let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. Whichever way the tax law changes is the way the donors and their advisors start shifting. And so there was that period of time where annuities were the big thing. And then now it's really shifting to donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would say about that is you on my side or on the parish side, you don't have to be the experts in these areas. Um, That's why folks have their own advisors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We obviously have a good relationship relationship with a number of Catholic lawyers and financial planners if someone asks us for some recommendations, but we don't ever try to substitute for the advice they're going to get from their own good financial counsel. And there's so many ways to give, whether it's insurance, retirement plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's tax advantages for giving this to the church and giving this to your kids. And and we can help people through those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But each person's situation is so very unique. Sure. And that's why these gifts take a long time to put together, to get everything signed on the dotted line. Going, kind of going back to that initial discussion we were having, but you're in the presence of God when you're doing it, and you're doing it for the right reasons, and you work it through, and it will be just fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Probably the biggest thing people tell me is, I wish I could get my kids to not do this when I start bringing these kind of yeah, conversations. Plug, plug their ears. Right, because the kids don't want to face often the mortality of their parents or their grandparents. And and as you get to a certain age, you're comfortable in those conversations. You're ready. And it's not morbid. It is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
sometimes I, I help a little bit on, I do have a, a way to help them open the conversation with their kids, but it's not all technical all the time. Sometimes well, it's just having the conversation. And what is, what is that advice of, of helping people? Well, so I use a resource. Uh, I, it's about a deck of 52 picture cards and the pictures mean something different to everyone, but as you flip through them, you go through and and they're images of like, oh, say, um, black man, young black man in cap and gown hugging someone. He's obviously just got his diploma. There may be an image that looks like a Bible, another image that looks like sailboats, another image of family gatherings. So there are all kinds of things that different people see different things in each image. And I invite them to go through the deck of cards and narrow down to the three that resonate the most with them when they think about what their legacy is. And it's a really emotional exercise and it gets people to articulate things that they've maybe never, ever truly said out loud mm -hmm. to anyone before. And after we do it, and they've kind of got a little more clarity around what I might want to give something to, maybe a little to my university, a little to, you know, the neighborhood school down the street, some to my church. I give them an online version of the cards. It's an app and let them shuffle through the cards with their kids Okay. and say, just take a weekend. Don't even talk about you're more, but let's just talk about what mom or dad sees as their legacy and have the conversation and, and use that. And I, I hear back from a lot of these people how helpful that was in to get the conversation going. And why, why do you think it would be important or special to remember the church in particular in people's estate giving? Well, you know, so many people, that's the number one thing they've given all their charitable giving to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, say if there, there are those people that maybe take 10% and think of a tithe and, okay, 5% goes to my church offertory and 3% is going to go to the church's capital campaign, 1% to the annual appeal and 2% to all remaining charities. We're already, that's your single biggest giving is to your church. You're giving a little bit less to universities or heart association or whatever else. Yet, when it comes down to remembering at death, so many people don't have a will, haven't thought about it, haven't made any provisions. And so I try to plant the seed in my parishes. One of my little bulletin blurbs is, after you're gone, who will replace your giving to the church? And the answer to that is, you will. You know, because if you set up an endowment in advance, if you that is going to benefit your church and provide your church an annual income forever and ever and ever, then all your estate bequests or your um, beneficiary designations simply need to fund that endowment. And your church is taken care of forever, even when you're gone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of people are doing that. We understand something instinctively is wrong about death, that we're made for life. 
right? And we, we speak of the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. And that Christ said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And so there's a certain wrestling that we do with our own death and death of loved ones, but perceived in the context of faith, we see it as birth to eternal life. Indeed, we are we are made for eternity. Um, and so it seems that you could you can perceive an estate gift as you're just describing a planned gift as as a way to in a sense continue to be present to your community to continue to serve the mission of the church in perpetuity in 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 the temporal world much less praising god forever and the church triumphant forever in heaven Christopher, you are writing my next blurbs right now. <laughs> you're welcome. The bill's in the mail. <laughs> the, the way you're saying it is is just so ideal, and it, it is exactly what this work of plan giving in the church is all about, mm-hmm. because it is forever. Um, one thing that I get, I get a little disappointed about, sometimes there were people who planted these seeds way before me, and so even today, we're getting estate gifts. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear of one when a church gets a million dollars or let's or say something less. Let's say $100,000. And what does that pastor want to do? He wants to put it in the operating account and pay as many bills as he can. And that's why I've worked really hard in deanery meetings and conversations. I said, the First minute you hear about an estate bequest coming through to your parish, call me. Mm-hmm. Because typically what we do is take that and create something in memory of that person so that it's forever there. And then remember every year, forever and ever, that we get a check from the Mrs. Sam Smith Memorial Fund. If they put the $100,000 in their checking account, she's not going to be remembered. They're going to fritter through the money. They're going to buy a, you know, buy some things. And though, I mean, when I say fritter, that's probably disingenuous in the church. But you know what I mean? It it won't be as well thought out. And plus that, they're going to pay cathedraticum on, you know, a large percentage (laughs) of it right off the top Mm -hmm. if they do that. And so it's really important that everyone, the individual Catholic faithful, the parish office staffs, the pastors, that everybody has some understanding of why this is so important in our work as church today. We live in a culture that I I think it's fair to say is saving less. They're not exercising as much forethought about their finances on this side of the grave, much less the other side. And that might even translate to parish priests and and finance uh, people in church finance who feel the pinch, who feel the burden, the pressure right now to handle, you know, financial need X, Y, and Z. All of a sudden there's a flush from an estate gift that maybe they knew about or didn't. And you could see how it might be somewhat tempting to say, oh, here's the, you know, the rescue that we've been, we've been waiting for. 
rather than allowing that gift, as you're saying, to to really be of benefit to the parish forever. There's a certain trust there. They can take some of it right off the top Mm -hmm. and do some project that they've always been wanting to do, but it just deserves the same type of thought that that donor Mm. put into it when Mm -hmm. they made the bequest in the first place. Yeah, that makes a good point. Yeah, planned gifts are made out of a out of a place of discernment, and they should be received equally in a place of discernment. Boy, I am going to watch this recording and transcribe because your your way of putting things <laughs> is so beautiful. Well, I, I thank you. I I appreciate that. But it's uh, so if if you're ever not in the capital campaign world and you want to get in planned giving okay. all the time, I think I think you're gifted that way, Christopher. Well, thank you, Jim Steyer. Did you hear that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so. Renee, in the last couple minutes here that we have, I was wondering, do you have a a story you could share, a, a success story, if we want to call it that, or maybe a spiritually graced moment, going back to what we began our conversation with about God, learning to perceive uh, God's presence in, in these conversations, some kind of in, inspiring, some some encounter that's been inspiring for you? That, I don't know if it's it's overly inspiring other than what the man did is indeed inspiring but a few months ago uh probably right after january february somewhere in that time frame we get this simple email it's not two lines long it's basically I'm interested in leaving my entire estate to the Diocese of Fort Worth. Would somebody please call me? And we laughed. You know, it's like, uh, yes. Yes, someone will. We'll call you. And that put us in touch with this wonderful man who basically chose to give it all Um, if you will, to the annual appeal. And the reason he chose the annual appeal is because he knows this bishop and all his successors, the appeal is always for the priorities of the time, the needs that are seen. And he felt like that way it would always be going to the most important things as seen by the Bishop of Fort Worth. But when we quizzed him about, so why, why in particular, our bishop had been to his parish. He was from a little rural, com- rural community east of Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And he said, the bishop comes there and does mass, you know, times other than confirmations. Just it's Sunday and he'll go in and there he is. He said, I've always been impressed with his homilies, his teachings. And so I, I have that level of trust. And so really our bishop actually influenced this gift. Mm. Um, as far as the man himself, the reason why he was the right candidate, never married, and inherited a lot of money, didn't live on this money. Um, he invested and is growing it, but he he lives frugally and simply, and he want, he knew he wanted it to do good after his lifetime. And so the inspiring thing of all that is uh, his first name's Daniel. Um, we asked Daniel, Would you allow us to share your story? Not the dollar amounts, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're substantial. It's millions and millions of dollars. 
Okay. Uh, but not the dollar amount, but the decision you made and why you made it mm-hmm. in that you may inspire others to mm-hmm. make a gift like this. Mm-hmm. And thanks be to God, he allowed that. Um, he was interviewed by our North Texas Catholic magazine, uh, an issue that's coming out here in just a few days. and will be in mailboxes. We photographed him and we have the story will be on our plan giving website as well. And it, it basically shares about his lifestyle. He's a retired um, Coast Guard, was his trade. And mm-hmm. then he obviously knows how to manage money real well mm-hmm. with his inheritance. And um, so that's kind of the story. I, I think I think it's inspiring just because his life of humility, what led him to the decision. And boy, once he was ready. I mean, we got all the paperwork signed. He gave us copies of every mm-hmm. financial instrument to prove that he had done this, mm-hmm. put it to bed within a matter of days, actually. Wow. wow. What an extraordinary story of someone who served his country in the Coast Guard and seemed to, like you said, handled money well, but he inherited that money and recognized that just because he got that money through inheritance, that doesn't mean he could squander it or, you know, just live, right. live high off a standard of living he maybe wasn't used to. and Well, plus he's like that, you know, the, the good stewards we learn about in the Bible. He didn't bury those talents in the ground. He's making them grow for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's his role in it mm-hmm. is he knows every day what he's worth because he, you know, is checking the markets sure. and this and that, and he shared as much in conversations. but But he's not crass about it. He is just such a good and godly man. And there's so many like him. Mm -hmm. There are. Not just in our diocese, but all over. Right. And maybe maybe that's uh, where we can wrap up. And that's that there are people like that all over. People who are waiting, as we said, waiting to be invited, waiting to be encouraged to remember their parish or the diocese or some ministry in the church. As you said, it's diversified. There's whatever whatever draws your heart in service to the mission of the gospel. Uh, there is no doubt a funding need to keep that mission alive. And for those uh, who serve the church in a leadership capacity and fundraising, development, stewardship capacity, it's incumbent upon us to um, keep that invitation extended to others. And uh, hopefully others will will get on board for all of the great work you're doing, Renee, and uh, in the Diocese of Fort Worth and for your work with ICSC and sharing your wisdom and experience with so many colleagues. Thank you so much. And for your time today, it's been a delight talking to you and for all of your practical tips and, and great wisdom. We're very grateful. And, and for those you shared, I just add to my list. So thank you, Christopher. It's been a pleasure. On June 11th, 2022, the Steyer Group celebrated its 25th anniversary. To celebrate and commemorate this milestone, I sat down with Jim Steyer, founder and chief executive officer of the Steyer Group, to discuss the company's 25-year history from when he started the firm to the great success the company enjoys today. Here is a portion of that conversation in this episode's 25th anniversary segment. 
Jim, thanks so much as we're um, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Steyer Group. Thanks for sitting down with me to talk about the past 25 years. Thanks, Christopher. We're really excited to, uh, to visit with you as we celebrate our 25th anniversary at the Steyer Group. How would you describe your style of leadership, maybe currently, and how has that developed over time, over the last 25 years? I guess I would hope to describe myself as a collaborative leader. I try to check my ego at the door and be as humble as possible. When you surround yourself with smart people, I think you tend to make good decisions. And we've certainly made our share of bad decisions over the years. Don't get me wrong. But the good ones far outweigh the bad ones. And, you know, the strength of our company and the results we achieve for our clients is a testament to that. Mm-hmm. Was I always as collaborative? Maybe, maybe not. So I think maybe I've grown in that regard, just with wisdom and time. And um, maybe you know, I should ask Mike to- Bloom the question. Yeah, that would be, you would have probably a different answer. (laughs) I'm so grateful to you for spending some time with me and my guest, Renee Underwood of the Diocese of Fort Worth, to discuss remembering the church in your planned giving. I hope you found the episode spiritually and practically helpful. And I'm glad you could help us at the Steyer Group celebrate our 25th anniversary with our ongoing conversation with Jim Steyer. A new episode of 12 Wicker Baskets is released on the last Wednesday of each month, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future guests. If you have any questions for me or Renee or any recommendations for our podcast, send me an email at twb at steyergroup.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I look forward to having you back here with us again on 12 Wicker Baskets.